Hi, I'm Rick Samprin, filling in for Bill Kelly. The latest Amber Alert rang out early Thursday morning, rattling phones and startling people across Ontario. And once again, police and 911 dispatchers fielded complaints. The manhunt for two alleged killers continues in northern Manitoba, and it hasn't been an easy search for police officers involved. And the list of Ontario's best and worst cities for drivers is out. And we'll tell you which cities around the world are the worst for motorists. Enjoy the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The latest late night, early morning Amber Alert rang out early yesterday morning. Rattling phones and startling people across the province out of their beds just after 3 in the morning. A two-year-old Branford girl was allegedly abducted by her father uh, in Branford late Wednesday night. Police tracked the man to Hamilton where he was arrested and the toddler was found safe. Well, the situation ended on a happy note. The overnight alerts, again, bringing more and more complaints from citizens. Some of those people are stupidly calling 911 to complain about it. Others calling police or even their local politicians to ask for change. Do the emergency messages on our phones, TVs and radios need to be tweaked? Dalia Monticelli is the woman behind a petition to have people who call 911 to complain about receiving an Amber Alert on their phones be fined. And we'll hear from her a little later on in this segment. But 911 and Brantford police have received complaints about the early morning wake-up call. Let's bring in our first guest of the show, Constable Shane Siebert from Brantford Police, and he joins us now. Constable Siebert, good morning. Hi, Shane. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, there you are. Um, okay, so another Amber Alert uh, comes across our TVs and radios and cell phones. You guys taking on a number of complaints. Are you surprised, still surprised at this point that the complaints are coming in? Uh, in regards to the Amber Alert, you know, we have to stay focused when we look at uh, these type of cases. Uh, the end goal is always the safe return of a child. Uh, we do understand that not everybody's going to, you know, agree with our methods or agree with what uh, what has happened, but we had a safe return to this child, so that's the uh, the utmost uh, importance of this case. That is the main thing. There's no doubt about it. Explain how an Amber Alert is decided upon. What are the parameters uh, that issue an Amber Alert or that, or that trigger an Amber Alert? Yes, I don't have the exact parameters in front of me. However, it is an investigative tool that police can use uh, when they uh, are looking at a case for an abducted child. Uh, <clears throat> they are not taken lightly, um, and there is an established criteria that is uh, is set out um, by police agencies in Ontario, and with the assistance of the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, an Amber Alert is, uh, is issued uh, when it's deemed necessary. Yeah, it's not like police are just issuing these willy-nilly. I mean, there is a... There, there's some guidelines, and you have to follow these guidelines. There is very much so, and it's, it's part of the investigative process. Uh, not every case meets the uh, the guidelines for an Amber Alert. Um, however, in this case, uh, the criteria was met, and it was a uh, decision was made to put out the Amber Alert. And uh, uh, you know, we did have a successful completion to this case, and the two-year-old child was uh, located safely. In these cases, time is very much of the essence, right? It is very much so. Um, as, as we're all aware, it, uh, you know, uh, people can travel uh, very quickly uh, from uh, one end of the province to uh, another these days. And the quicker we can get information out uh, to the public uh, to assist us in these cases, um, you know, the, the better off we are to have a successful completion to them. You, you guys, 911, you've received a ton of complaints. How, how do you respond to the people who are complaining? What do you say to them? 
you know, we're we're very professional in our communicators and our 911 dispatchers. You know, um, you know, they're they're very professional when they talk to these people. Uh, they let them know that that's not the proper use of the 911 system. Um, you know, they um, there is a certain uh, process if you wish to file a formal complaint in regards to uh, how police are are doing their job. Um, however, um, you know, using 911 is not uh, the appropriate place to do so. Uh, we're chatting with Constable Shane Siebert from Brantford Police here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Uh, do you think all these complaints may be leading to a change or a possible tweak in how these alerts are issued? Um, it's hard to say. You know, I, I'm, I, it's hard to speculate on what uh, what might happen. Um, you know, from from what I've seen, even though we have received a number of complaints, from what I can see, uh, you know, on uh, online and uh, from a number of people who've actually stopped in the front of our station to actually thank us for uh, for using the AMR alert. Um, you know, it seems like the majority of people um, outweigh uh, those few who. Uh, who decide that the Amber Alert um, is somewhat bothersome to them. Uh, the thrust of the, the complaints, I think, well, beyond, you know, some of the timing of them, uh, are, uh, you know, as a citizen, what am I expected to do at 3 in the morning? You know, get out of bed and start driving around? Uh, again, that's probably not the people that this alert is targeted to. It might be, you know, taxi drivers who are driving around, or Uber drivers, or bus drivers, or people who are still on shift work and are out and about at that time of the day, right? And that's the thing. It's hard to specifically target, you know, individuals. We don't know who's going to be asleep, who's going to be awake. Um, it is a system designed to get the information out to as many people as possible. You know, it doesn't just go on to uh, people's cell phones. It goes on to, uh, you know, billboards on highways. Um, you know, there are different uh, medians of uh, of social media and you know television and you know radio things like that that uh, that the Amber Alert goes out to, um, so we can't pick and choose who uh, who the message goes to and, and how far and how uh, how wide it goes. You know, if we receive some um, some criticism from some people from as far as uh, you know Ottawa and uh, the GTA area things like that. Um, like I said before, people can travel a quick distance at a very, you know, short period of time, and um, we ultimately don't know where their destination is. You know, in this case, it was, uh, um, you know, just about a half hour away. However, it was out of our jurisdiction, and we had to get information um, out there as quickly as possible. You know, uh, the per individuals could have gone, uh, you know, six, seven hours away, and we had to get the information out there. A good example of that, and this is unrelated, is is the two suspects in the B.C. murder case. You know, one day they're in B.C., it seems the next they're in, you know, halfway across the country in Manitoba. So, yeah, here, another example of time being, uh, you know, of the essence. And, and at, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these people that are complaining, they wouldn't be complaining if it was their child who was abducted. And that's the message that we are, are that we're getting from people. Like I said, you know, on, on social media feeds and stuff that we're seeing on our, you know, our Twitter accounts, and you know, like I said, people are, are even stopping in the front of our station to thank us. Um, you know, getting that information out there uh, is, is paramount. And like you said, if it, if what if it was. Um, someone that they knew or someone that, uh, you know, a friend of theirs or, you know, we have no idea who knows who these days. And as far as you know, the, the Branford toddler involved in this case is doing fine? Uh, from what I understand, yes. Excellent. Constable Siebert, appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Constable Shane Siebert from Branford Police uh, telling us a little bit of info of how Amber Alerts work and why they're issued and why this one in particular, well, all of them really, are so important because children uh, have been abducted or in some cases allegedly abducted by family members and the responsibility of the police is to serve and protect and in this case they are trying to serve the parent who's looking for their abducted child and I mean personally I don't mind getting rattled out of bed by an amber alert 
whether it's 1 in the morning or 3 in the morning or 11 at night, whatever the case is, you know, a child has gone missing, has been abducted. If it was my child, I would want that message spread around the world. I think we do, we got to do a better job as a society to put ourselves in other people's shoes. I know, hard to do at times. Sometimes we're a little selfish. But in this case, you know, calling 911 to complain, calling police to complain, what do you expect the police to do? Not send out an Amber Alert? So let's think about that for a second. A child has been abducted. Police are looking for this child. Ah, you know what, folks? We don't want your help this time around. We're not going to send this alert because we don't want to wake you up. We're going to go find this child or this suspect on our own. And I know sometimes that's part of their job. They have to do things on their own. They're not going to rely on us in a murder investigation. But in these cases, when child's children are abducted, they want to find that child as fast as they can. So, hey, let's spread this message out to the public and get this done. I think the system works great. I think if there was one tweak that I would recommend is that secondary alert where the child has been found. I don't think we need a sound associated with that. I think just a notification on our phones or our TVs or radios will kind of be hard to do a soundless notification on the radio, but a notification on our phones to say, all right, the child's been found. Thank you very much. You can continue on with your life. I don't think we need a secondary sound with that. The first one, yeah, hey, bam, we need your help, folks. Here's this sounder. Amber Alert's been issued. Get out there and look for such and such vehicle or person. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada-wide warrants has been issued for 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski and 19-year-old Cam McLeod, both charged with second-degree murder Wednesday in connection to the death of 64-year-old Vancouver resident Leonard Dick. However, there are questions as to why there are still no charges in connections uh, or in connection to the murders of Sydney Australian native Lucas Fowler and China Deese of Charlotte, North Carolina. Manitoba RCMP believe that Schmigelski and McLeod remain in the Gillam area in the northern part of the province. Let's bring in our next guest. Diana Foxhall is her name from sister station CJOB in Winnipeg. Diana, good morning. Good morning, Rick. What's the latest in the investigation? So as far as police are saying, they do believe the two suspects are still in the Gillam area. Now, Gillam is very far north. It's about 750 kilometers north of Winnipeg. It's pretty remote. There's maybe 1,300 people who live there. So um, the police believe that the suspects are hiding somewhere potentially in the forest, in the brush. Um, the terrain out there is pretty swampy. It, there's quite a bit of muskeg. Um, but police are searching for these guys very actively. They brought in units from all over Western Canada. They've brought in police dog services. They've brought in air services. They have drones scouting the territory. Um, now they've also set up a checkpoint at the only road in and out of the community. So they are just trying to make sure that if the suspects are in the area, they don't get out. Now police don't believe they have a vehicle with them. Um, on Monday night, a burnt out Toyota RAV4 that the suspects were traveling in was found in Fox Lake Cree Nation, which is near Gillum. Um, and there were two corroborated sightings of the suspects sort of before, just before that on Monday from the sounds of it. Um, but no vehicles have been reported stolen in the Gillum area uh, since then. So police believe the two suspects are still 
in the area and that they are on foot. Give us a sense of what the conditions police officers and obviously these two suspects are encountering. This is a, a, a harsh terrain that they're dealing with, right? Absolutely. We've heard from uh, experts that this isn't an area that many people could kind of last for long without any help. Now, we do know at least one of the suspects has some kind of wilderness experience, uh, but these two young men are from Port Alberni, B.C. That's pretty different from northern Manitoba. So, uh, again, this is a place where there's a lot of swampy muskeg, lots of bushes, lots of trees, also tons of insects. Uh, we have a global reporter up there, and it's just... Uh, there's a lot of flies around, that sort of thing. So we're also hearing you could be walking along kind of in the woods and all of a sudden one leg goes into the ground because what looks like solid ground might actually kind of be swamp. So it can be a little bit dangerous, uh, just very rugged terrain, very remote. Um, and again, one road in or out. So not a lot of options as far as traveling if you are on wheels. Um, there is a train that connects Gillum to Churchill. Uh, so RCMP up in Churchill were looking at train cars both passenger and freight as they arrived in Churchill yesterday but the thought process is is that these two suspects are still near Gillum. We're chatting with Diana Foxhall with sister station CJOB in Winnipeg talking about the manhunt for two alleged killers uh, continuing today in northern Manitoba. Have police indicated that they're making any headway at all? They are not releasing too, too many details. They are telling us as much as they seem to know at this point. Again, we were told there were two sightings of the pair in the area. Um, those sightings on Monday, before that burnt out vehicle was found Monday night. Uh, police are saying it's a dynamic fluid situation. Um, they're saying the check stop will be in place for the foreseeable future until they kind of get somewhere on this. Um, but they didn't have a ton of information, of course, on Wednesday when they provided us with the first update to Manitoba RCMP. That is, um, that was the the burnt out vehicle that they had located and then now just a little bit more information saying they are likely still in the area they are likely on foot um, and just that numerous police have been brought in um, hearing OPP are involved in this as well RCMP from other jurisdictions in western Canada so a massive effort being made to track down these two suspects. What are local residents saying what are Manitobans saying is there a tangible fear in the community or in the province? Definitely. So Gillum is, again, a very small town. It's a place where people normally wouldn't not, wouldn't lock their doors at night. So I spoke with the deputy mayor on Wednesday morning, and he says he locked his doors Tuesday night, and he, he heard a lot of other people did, but that's not normal for them. So after finding out that these two suspects may be in the area on Tuesday, people definitely are on edge. I know the co-op grocery store up in Gillum kind of reduced its hours on Wednesday, um, so people weren't outside as much, kind of if these suspects are in the area, people are staying close to home. And all around the province, the, the rumor mill is really running rampant with this one. Any sort of increased police presence at any other location in Manitoba is kind of being flagged as, oh, maybe are the suspects here? But RCMP are very confident that these two suspects are in northern Manitoba near the Gillum area. When can we expect the next update from police? Have they given any indication? No indication just yet, and we have reached out to them this morning to see if there is any kind of update. Um, we did get an update at 3 o'clock Central Time on Wednesday. We also got a, an update again at the same time yesterday. So it's uncertain if this is going to be a sort of daily update situation in the afternoon or simply when police have information. So we are going to be following this very closely, and we will stay as up-to-date as we can. Diana Foxhall, thanks for the time today. 
you're very welcome. Diana Foxhall with sister station CJOB in Winnipeg. Len Dick's body was found on July 19th, just a couple of kilometers away from a burning red truck on Highway 37 south of Deese Lake in B.C. The truck was later confirmed to be uh, the one driven by Schmigelski and McLeod, who were believed to be traveling from Port Alberni, B.C., to the Yukon for work. Now, four days earlier, in about well, nearly 500, uh, 500 kilometers east of that crime scene, the bodies of Lucas Fowler, the individual from Sydney, Australia, and uh, his girlfriend, China Deese, of North Carolina were found on the side of a highway. Now, Schmigelski and McLeod are suspects in the couple's shooting death, but no charges have been laid just yet. Police saying yesterday that there have been two confirmed sightings of the pair, and we heard Diana mention this as well, most recently on Monday, before the Toyota RAV4 that they were allegedly driving was found uh, burned out in that area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. RCMP believe 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski and 19-year-old Cam McLeod are in the Gillum area of northern Manitoba. Gillum has got a population of just over 1,000 people. It's a railway town. Uh, the terrain is described as harsh, heavily forested and rugged. The bush is thick. The land is swampy. There's insects just about everywhere. And there are also plenty of places to hide it at least for a few days, making the search for these two suspects, well, a tricky one, to say the least. So how do police search for two alleged killers who are likely still armed and extremely dangerous in the wilderness? Let's bring in our next guest. His name is Kevin Bryan, professor at Seneca College and a retired police officer here to the Bill Kelly Show. Kevin, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Good, thanks. One question being asked is how do two suspected killers make their way halfway across the country before they're cornered by police? Well, it sounds like they didn't know where they were going as they were making their way east and, and wound up in this uh, small town at Gillum. Uh, you know, as they were traveling east, they, they're in an area where GPS isn't working. Uh, you, you, there's no, uh, you know, internet type thing. So they were probably making their way east and uh, kind of got caught in this uh, dead-end road that just went into the one town and uh, and couldn't get back out without, uh, who, who knows, the, the, the reason they, they, they didn't come back out of town, maybe that's where they decided to finally hole up. But uh, it looks like the vehicle they were driving when they left British Columbia after murdering uh, Leonard Dick, the, uh, the professor from uh, UBC, uh, was his vehicle. That's what his little, his RAV4 there is, what looks what, like that is what they stole, made their way over there and burnt the vehicle once they were finished with it. My, my concern with the RCMP search is that, you know, they've been up there for a couple of days now and haven't been able to flush them out. And I'm a little bit uh, uh, kind of curious as to why they haven't been able to flush them out. And my other concern is that the two confirmed sightings of the of the two suspects uh, took place prior to finding the vehicle burned out. So that, that means they could have commandeered another vehicle or, you know, I just uh, am very surprised they haven't been flushed out yet. So really, there's a chance that they might not even be in that area. Yeah, I think I certainly think there's a chance they're not in that area. I mean, the RCMP, by the amount of resources they have up there, I, I think they're pretty confident they're up there. So, and we're not privy to all the information that RCMP have. But um, 
you know, there certainly is a chance they're not up there. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've been to small towns before, small north, like northern Ontario towns before, where uh, the rail towns, so to speak. And you know, as much as there are places to hide, and as much as there are, um, you know, dense, dense bush and stuff like that, that's not a place you want to go hang out for, you know, two, three days and two, three nights. And uh, you know, you're going to be on the move, or you're you're going to be. Uh, um, making some type of movement where the police should be able to track you. I, I think the difficulties for the RCMP up there in that part is, you know, as much as many resources they are in the way of manpower, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of police dogs and uh, on the, on the ground up there. Um, I, I think the problem is, you know, you get the helicopters up there or, you know, there's not a lot of uh, place, you know, there's not a lot of time. You, you go up in a helicopter, you've got an hour, hour and a half of fuel before you have to land. So you, want to make sure you're in the right area before you start uh you know where, where you're flying around and such so very very difficult to search that area but also very surprising they haven't been flushed out yet uh, i understand they're using drones and you mentioned dogs as well obviously the 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 terrain is uh, you know very thick uh, bush or trees there aren't a lot of open areas and if they are obviously the suspects aren't going to be there how do police tackle this do they just form a big circle and kind of close in and then if they're not there they they do the same somewhere else well you, you know this is kind of a unique search you know it is it's it's like looking for missing persons it's like looking for somebody who's gone missing but it's on a, a scale where the terrain and the and the weather are, are all factors, and, and, and uh, the fact that these people are, are you know, considered armed and dangerous, um, you know, th- those are factors. So you have to, you, you can't send the public out to search or send the public out to assist. You have to uh, have, like, you know, uh, tag team members pretty well with any of, the, even the dog handlers. You'll notice a dog handler with his dog, and with him will be two officers, two tag team officers going. So it, it becomes very difficult on a ground search uh um, method, like because um, again, it uses up so many resources just with your your one one dog and uh, a handler, as well as uh, uh, two tag team members for each uh, for each uh, search you're doing. So, you know, it, it's very difficult. Ideally, they would be able to you know exercise the use of the drones as well as a helicopter or some type of uh, uh, air surveillance up there, and uh, that's that's where I'd be going or trying to trying to go. I'm just uh, not as I'm just very surprised and, and not as confident that they're up there as uh, the RCMP seems to be. And again, understanding that they have more information than uh, the public does. Kevin Bryan is a professor at Seneca College, a retired police officer. We're talking about the manhunt for two suspected uh, killers who are believed to be in uh, Gillum uh, near northern or in uh, northern Manitoba. Um, f- if these two individuals are there and and we're talking about the ground search for them. Is this a silent search or are officers calling out to them to, you know, give themselves up? You know, what's the strategy behind that? Because these people don't want to be found. Yeah, no, it would it would be a silent search. It's not something where they want them to know that they're in the area. So so ideally the dogs would pick up a scent and, and that's that would be the ideal thing. I mean, if the suspects see the drone above head, they're going to know that, you know, that uh, they're, they're close by and such. But um it, it's it's something where the the officers would rather surprise them than than be ambushed by by the two as they approach. Although we really don't know, and, and this kind of frustrates me a little bit uh, in in the um, information that the RCMP does release to the public or to you know the media is with regards to 
what what weapon are these person are these suspects in possession of? They should know by now if it's a you know I, you know I've been to enough autopsies I can tell you if a person was shot by a long gun or by a, a handgun. Um, do these per you know how many shell casings were at the scene? Where where did the gun come from or potentially come from? Like I'd like to you know I'd I'd, I'd like both as a police officer and hopefully the officers doing the search know. But as, as as an officer and as as the public, like I'd like to know what is the uh, what what is the uh, armaments that these uh, um, suspects are are you know suspected of having with them. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they don't if they don't have any ammunition left at all, and and they're probably more scared than they are aggressive. Like they're they're afraid to approach people because they don't have uh, any ammunition left. They're, they're too tall. You know, six foot four, really yeah. Just young teenagers. They're both six foot four, hundred and sixty pounds. Like, you know, they're they're not the type of people who would intimidate you. Uh, you know, unless they did have some type of a weapon. Right, Kevin. Appreciate the time today. Anytime, Kevin Bryan, professor of Seneca College, retired police officer, offering some insights on how RCMP are conducting the search for two accused killers who are believed to be hiding out in the Gillum area. That's about a thousand kilometers uh, north of Winnipeg in northern Manitoba. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's worst cities for drivers with a ticket or collision or combination of the two are Orangeville, Bradford, and Woodstock. The province's best? North York, Toronto, and East York. I'm scratching my head. Figuratively, of course. That's according to a new study from insurancehotline.com. And here to shed some light on the best and worst cities to drive in is Anne-Marie Thomas from insurancehotline.com. And she joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Anne-Marie, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Yourself, Rick? I'm not too bad. How was this list of the best and worst cities to drive in compiled? So how we got this data is uh, insurancehotline.com is an insurance rates comparison website. So consumers come onto our site, enter some information, you know, their postal code, the vehicle they drive, um, how long they're licensed, as well as, um, you know, tickets that they've had in the last three years and accidents that they've had in the last 10 years. We pull all of that information together and get them the lowest rate that we can find for their profile. So we took all of the data from quotes that consumers have done over the last two years and ranked everybody. So the top 10 worst cities in Ontario for driving with a a grade of D, I guess no Fs were handed out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, D is not great. F would just be, you know, less great. Adding insult to injury. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. So Brantford, Orangeville, Bradford, Woodstock, Sault Ste. Marie, Aurelia, all in that D category. So there's some pretty bad drivers there? Well, based on the information that the consumers have provided us with, and we're not really sure the reason for that. Um, It could be, you know, just my, my own surmising. A lot of these areas are, you know, heavy snowfall areas. Is it is it? possible that weather-related collisions are happening more in those areas than they are in the surprisingly uh, good-rated cities like, you know, uh, Toronto, East York, um, North York. Uh, You know, so is is that it? Uh, It could be that 
you know, uh, drivers in the, the top, you know, five not so great uh, spend more time in their cars than do the drivers uh, in the cities that ranked well. You know, like Toronto, Etobicoke, et cetera, there's transit everywhere. Um, so if, you know, someone in Toronto wants to get to work, they can jump on the subway, they can jump on a streetcar. They don't necessarily have to have their car. But the same may not be said for um, the more rural cities or towns, right? It, yeah, no, it's a good point. St. Thomas, uh, Caledon, Barrie, Thunder Bay uh, got a grade of C. Uh, among the top 10 best cities in Ontario for driving, you mentioned a few of them, Toronto, North York, East York, Etobicoke's on the list, Mississauga, Brampton, Scarborough, York, Thornhill, and Oakville, all with a grade of A. And why I referred to Toronto, at least, and you know, there's a bunch of other suburbs in Toronto there, the Etobicoke's, Scarborough's, North and mm-hmm. East York in there. A, a head-scratcher for me because... You know, considering the population, the highways, you know, the speed on those highways, the number of drivers, uh, yeah, they get snow there as well. Uh, that to me was a little shocking when I saw Toronto on the list as the one of the best cities in Ontario for driving. Mm-hmm. It, it surprised me too, and it and it could be, as I said, you know, the the, the number of hours per week that a, a Toronto driver spends in their car. Maybe they only use their car on the weekend, or it's possible that traffic is so congested that no one goes fast enough to really hurt themselves um, uh, compared with, um, you know, in a more rural area where the highways are more open. Like we're bumper to bumper in Toronto the majority of the time on any of the highways. So it's, I mean, it, that's possible that the cost of collisions is less than the cost of collisions in uh you know somewhere more rural right because the the the, insurance premiums are less right because the collisions are could be or i guess in in most cases is the stat show less severe in terms of the damage amount exactly exactly so you know it's i mean i I would imagine a, a lot of them are smaller fender benders Versus something major. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the key findings. Yeah, no, that's a great. It's a great guesstimate. Uh, uh, some of the key findings in this report um, from insurancehotline.com. About three and a half percent of Ontario drivers admit to having at least one at-fault crash and one ticket on their record. Orangeville uh, drivers top the list at nine point four percent. That's pretty high, and uh, that's followed by Bradford and Sault Ste. Marie at eight point. Four percent. So at least one at-fault crash and one ticket on their record. So yeah, there's some pretty bad drivers here. It's a potential, right? Like that's that's what the that's what the data reads. But Hamilton didn't score too too badly. They well they got a C. So that that's not awful. So we're getting a passing grade, just barely. You are. <laughs> but there's, you know, at the risk of sounding like the teacher, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> We'll try to do better next time. (laughs) Uh, Another key finding as we discuss uh, this um, uh, study from insurancehotline.com with Anne-Marie Thomas is that on average 6.9% of drivers in the province admit to having at least one ticket on their driving record. However, drivers from Caledon report in at 15%, Orangeville at 13.2%. What's going on in Orangeville? I mean, they're just driving around crazily? Well, see, I don't, I, I can't answer that. But one of the things that I wondered it was, is Orangeville just better patrolled? 
right? Are Possibly. there, yeah. you know, are, 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 you know, is that, uh, I know Orangeville has had significant growth. Is it possible that uh, these people are just getting caught more because the police are out in more of a full force or, you know, are the people in Orangeville just unlucky? <laughs> that could be the case, too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Five years from now, I'd love to see the stats to see if they've changed, if they've learned their lesson in Orangeville. Yeah, yeah but if you think about it, someone in Orangeville, odds are they don't work in Orangeville, right? Because there's, True. there's, a, there's you know, there's a whole um, it, new developments and everything happening in Orangeville. So, I mean, it's entirely possible that they're leaving Orangeville every day to commute. So, you know, the, as I said earlier, the... The more we increase the number of hours in a week that we're driving our car, we're also increasing um, the potential for collision and tickets. But the thing with tickets, that's really in our control, right? So if we all behave on the road, then uh, we can control whether or not the ticket happens, right? Sometimes a collision happens to us, but with tickets, uh, you know, we, we went through that stop sign or we exceeded that speed limit or followed that guy just a little bit too close, that's all kind of in our control, right? Those are those preventable uh, measures, that's for sure. And you, and you mentioned location mm-hmm. in reference to, to, to Orangeville. Location is one of the key components in determining uh, a person's auto insurance rate, right? You're right. So uh, there are a number of factors, and that's, that's really, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really what we wanted to highlight Um, for people is that not only is it where you live and you can see by the grading here that Brampton we know is one of the highest um, insurance premium uh, cities in Canada but they rank better for uh, like they got an A in terms of you know cities for driving so um, you know uh, the where you live and the number of tickets and accidents on your record is important, but also is important is finding the right insurance company for your profile, right? So one speeding ticket could increase your auto insurance rate by 5% with one company. Another company might say, we don't mind if you have one minor ticket. So it's about finding the right um, insurance company for your profile and, you know, maybe um, you know, maybe the company that you're with was great before you had the ticket, and then you get a ticket, and maybe now they're not so great. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to shop around. So can you those can those drivers in Brampton say, "Hey, listen, I mean, we're we're paying more than anyone else in the country because of where we live. Look at this report from InsuranceHotline.com. I want my rates to go down. We're we're in the A right. category. Right now, that's. So where you live and um, how you drive your driving record are a couple of parts of it. And uh, how profitable your insurance company is, is another Mm. uh, factor. So from what I understand, insurance companies who are paying claims in Brampton, they report that their claims costs are higher in Brampton than in another city, which impacts the premium. So maybe Orangeville has more collisions, but maybe they're not as expensive from an insurance company perspective as uh, as claims are from Brampton. 
do drivers in those worst cities, the Orangevilles of the world, the, the Branford, the Bradford, do they face an insurance rate hike because of this report? Uh, no, no. This is this is. Uh, just data that we've collected. Insurance companies, in order to increase your rate, um, and I don't think that a lot of people realize this, an insurance company can't just say, oh, we don't like X city, so we want to increase our rates. They have to compile actuarial data that proves that they're losing money in a particular driving profile, in a particular city, and they have to present that information to the province, to so uh, to FISRA, the financial, um, they just changed it from the Financial Services Commission, and that governing body has to approve the insurance company's rate increase. So an insurance company can't just unilaterally say, I want to increase rates or I want to decrease rates. They must have regulatory approval. Makes sense to me. Anne-Marie, appreciate the time today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Anne-Marie Thomas from insurancehotline.com. They compiled a list of the best and worst cities to drive in in Ontario. And they've come up with a couple of lists, Hamilton with a C, But Toronto, Mississauga, Brampton, Oakville, all getting an A, while Brantford, Orangeville, Bradford, Woodstock, Sault Ste. Marie, Aurelia getting a grade of a D. The grades are based on the increased or decreased likelihood of the drivers in the city reporting that they have tickets, crashes, or both on their record. And we know, apart from location, Uh, Insurance history, the type of vehicle you drive, your driving record, all key factors in determining auto insurance rates. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.